0: My name's Ken Keith. I'm in the last few months of my time at the International Court of Justice of my nine-year term. I I participated in this series very early on, uh, after I'd been at the court for a year or two, and you'll find that um, recording uh, in this series. What what I did then was to look more broadly across the range of judging and arbitration work that I'd done, uh, and, and related that to the court. Today I'm going to focus much more on the court, uh, but I'm going to look back rather further and look back over the whole of the life of the court, but primarily look at the most recent years, the ones that I know best from having been in The Hague through nine very busy years. Now, I could go back to the Permanent Court of International Justice, but others have done that, and what I propose to do is just make three quick points about that and then move on to the court and particularly what I see as lessons from the last um, period of the court's busy work. Uh, So far as the Permanent Court of International Justice is concerned, it began really pretty much from scratch. There was some very good arbitral experience. There had been some very careful work done over previous decades uh, in the leading up to a permanent court of permanent judges. And first of all, it did establish a sound set of uh, rules and procedural practices based on the statute of the Permanent Court, which is essentially being carried over into the current court in 1945, and based on good principle of ju- principles of judicial administration. That's the first thing it did. The second thing it did was to establish and consolidate and clarify certain important areas of international law notably relating to the law of treaties, uh, also important work on state responsibility and on territorial sovereignty. And just to f- flick in an extra point there, uh, also in that time there was a decision of the Permanent Court of Arbitration, a one-person court tribunal in that particular case, Judge Hubert, who had recently been president of the um, Permanent Court on the Island of Parmas case, another territorial case. Uh, And so that was the second thing that court did. But third, it was mainly concerned with European affairs, particularly cases arising under the major peace treaties that had been concluded after the First World War. And, And that European character of its business was matched by its membership. Seven of the 11 original judges were from Europe. Now, the current court is of course very different and the current business is very different. Now, so far as the um, current court is concerned, I take uh, three time periods and move through them fairly quickly before I get to the lessons. The first period is from the beginning, from 1946 until about 1965, the first 20 years, say. And, And it's a period that I, in a way, remember from the beginning of my studies of the court In 1960, I first uh, did international law, and at that time, the court was moving through really a very busy period. In those early 20 years, uh, the court made important, gave important decisions relating to the law of the sea, um, relating to the Corfu Channel case, the anglo Norwegian Fisheries case. uh, case. It gave important decisions about the law of treaties. continued to develop the law of treaty interpretation, uh, and it uh, did important work in relation to, the, to United Nations law and the status of Southwest Africa. There were already some signs, though, about the impact of the Cold War on the court's business. Uh, an order for the payment of uh, reparation against Albania made by the court, Uh, was not actually met until the 1990s, after the end of the Cold War and the restoration of diplomatic relations between Albania and the United Kingdom. The opinion that the court gave relating to admission to membership of the United Nations did not have real impact, uh, and it was only in 1955 that new members were admitted as part of a package deal. Uh, There was also the negative political reaction uh, not just by the uh, Soviet Union and its allies, but also by France to the court's ruling in an advisory opinion relating to the expenses of peacekeeping, but still a, a very positive beginning. Now in 1966 came what is commonly regarded by me as well as the disaster of the Southwest Africa cases, and that led to a lot of negative uh, views of the court and. There was a considerable fall-off in its business. Not all directly attributable, I must say, to to that decision. Uh, Following that, there was a period in which very little business came to the court. The court did give the very important um, early decision, the first decision on maritime delimitation, the North Sea Continental Shelf Case in 1969. Uh, It uh, decided the Barcelona Traction Case but on jurisdiction only, not on the merits, although both had been argued, uh, and and in that it made the important statement about obligations erga omnes. The court, uh, in respect of South West Africa in 1971 to some extent, um, redeemed itself in the eyes of many in the Namibia opinion, but then came a very difficult period in which I had a very minor role, uh, because in, in the course of the 1970s the court was faced with two cases brought by the United Kingdom and Germany against Iceland about Iceland's claim to a 50-mile fishing zone. Uh, There were the two cases brought by Australia and New Zealand uh, against France, trying to stop France testing nuclear weapons in the South Pacific. Uh, and, And there was the case brought by Pakistan against India um, relating to prisoners of war following the Bangladesh uh, conflict. Now, in all of those cases, the respondent states refused to appear um, and, and and argued the court had no jurisdiction. The Pakistan-India case was withdrawn, and so the court did not have to deal with it further. Uh, in the Icelandic uh, fisheries case cases, um, which arose as well in the situation of uh, really serious conflict involving um, some shooting uh, in in the North Atlantic. Uh, In that case, the court was really between a rock and a hard place. Uh, Iceland was claiming 50 miles, the law of the sea was plainly um, moving at that time, Uh, but the court said it could not anticipate the legislature, Uh, it was a matter for states to move the law along, as they were doing at that point very rapidly, because by the end of uh, that decade, many states were claiming a 200-mile zone. That um, process had begun uh, of claiming exclusive or extensive rights in respect of fisheries, and also in respect of oil and gas resources. Uh, Initially, with uh, the claims by Peru and uh, Chile and Ecuador on the west um, west coast of uh, South America into the Pacific, uh, and there were follow-up claims um, by a number of other states in respect of uh, continental shelf resources. So the law was on, on the move, and, and the court faced the difficulty that, it as it said, could not anticipate the legislature. Now, something, something the same could be said, I suppose, in respect of the nuclear testing cases, because there the Uh, case um, uh, was concerned with the developing law relating to nuclear weapons, it was also concerned as the French saw it, with central matters, essential matters of national security. France said it had been invaded three times in recent history. Uh, That was a bit of a leap for young countries like uh, New Zealand to think back as far as 1870, but three times in recent history, they had to have a force de frappe. That was essential to their national security. Uh, For New Zealand and Australia, it was a matter of trying to um, rid the world of nuclear weapons, or at least to reduce considerably the prospect of their being used. And and it was a matter of environmental concern as well. The first Stockholm Conference on the Environment was 1972. Now, in that case, the court... um, did not ever get to rule on the merits, it did not even indeed rule on jurisdiction because it said in a judgment given uh, in 1974, 40 years ago, uh, shows how long I've been in this business, um, the court said that long ago uh, that France, through various statements made by the president and other responsible officials, had committed not to test uh, nuclear weapons in the Uh, atmosphere in the South Pacific, and therefore there was no longer a dispute, there was no longer anything for it to rule on. Now, New Zealand did try to revive that case in 1995, uh, by applying in terms of a paragraph included in the 1974 judgment. That um, proceeding um, had various interesting aspects, one of which was that France did appear, uh, although they claimed there wasn't really a case uh, before the court. Now that um, case was unsuccessful uh, in, in legal terms, but France did then pr- stop any nuclear, any testing of nuclear weapons in the Pacific. So the, that matter uh, came off the agenda, the international agenda between New Zealand Australia on the one side and France on the other, uh, and it came off the court's agenda. Now at that time then, the court had had those very difficult cases, but then if I move forward to my third period from the late 1980s, um, there is then the problem earlier in the 80s of the case, case, case brought by Nicaragua against the United States, where the United States considered that the court had wrongly taken jurisdiction and it withdrew from the procedures from the proceedings. It also withdrew its acceptance of the court's jurisdiction, as had France in the previous um, decade. Both of them said the court had moved away from its true role. Um, They had not moved from the court. The court had moved from the the straight and proper road of uh, international adjudication according to law. Well, um, there were dire predictions at various times in the 70s and 80s that the court would have very little to do. And it is interesting to go back to 1970 and go back to the friendly relations uh, declaration, um, which was adopted in 1970 on the 25th anniversary, and to notice that it mentions the court not at all, something that Shabtai Rosen, the great commentator on the court, said was scandalous. By contrast, if you come forward to 1982 and the Manila declaration, you find positive comments about the court, comments that have been repeated more recently uh, in the 2005 outcome statement at the General Assembly uh, and again in the rule of law declaration uh, two or three years ago. So general attitudes can be seen to be changing and the court's business equally was rapidly changing from the late 80s. Uh, And the court uh, since that period has decided more than 70 cases it's decided many more cases in, in the last few years than it did in large chunks of its earlier life. Now, these cases um, have a number of characteristics. They uh, involve states from all areas of the world. Uh, nearly a hundred, uh, a hundred states have now appeared in cases before the court. Uh, over forty appeared in the in the Kosovo uh, advisory proceeding, uh, and. That 100 figure is to be found as well in other tribunals, in the World Trade Organization uh, processes, for instance. So states are getting more and more used to litigation, not simply in the international court, but in many other courts, and there are states from all areas. So cases from, from Asia, which had been rare, cases from um, Eastern Europe, which had never appeared before, uh, cases from Africa in significant numbers, cases from Europe, from Western Europe, and intercontinental cases, cases between Djibouti and France, between the Republic of Congo and France, between Australia and Japan, with New Zealand intervening over whaling. So uh, many states involved then in the court's processes. And as I've just roughly indicated, uh, a great wide range of subject matter Uh, and not only a great wide range of subject matter, but subject matter that um, can at times be very technical and scientific. And so we've had, um, in my time on the court, uh, challenging technical and scientific issues in respect of, if I could mention three cases, in respect of the river Uruguay, first of all, where the court was faced with arguments by Argentina that the Uruguay River, the boundary river between the two countries, was being polluted in breach of obligations uh, under a statute which had been drawn up between the two countries in 1975. So there the court was faced with a great deal of technical material about the operation of a pulp plant which was built on the Uruguay side of the river. Uh, a lot of technical material about, uh, uh, techni- about, about um, chemicals of one kind or another which required me to try to recover some of my um, rather ancient knowledge of chemistry, where we were greatly helped by very good technical material filed by the parties and by careful um, advocacy, with some problems arising in the course of that process which are described in the judgment. But there the court had to come to grips with those matters as well as with developing ideas of uh, the law protecting the environment. Ideas, for instance, about the role of uh, environmental impact assessments, uh, not something that was really much known in 1975, but which we thought uh, now was required by the broad terms of the statute uh, agreed to by the parties. Well there the court um, held on the one hand that uh, Uruguay had not complied with all of its um, uh, obligations of a procedural kind, but that substantively there was no breach. Um, Argentina had not established a breach of the various standards that had been adopted between the parties. And the court proposed at the end, having made that those findings, that the parties continue to cooperate through the bilateral commission, which they had established. And there you see the importance of ongoing management. Now, a second um, case involving technical matters Uh, was the whaling case between Australia and Japan, where we had um, some technical evidence filed about the whaling um, program which uh, Japan was undertaking, which was uh, presented as as a scientific whaling program under the provisions of the 1946 convention. Uh, And and we also had three expert witnesses appearing in that case, Um, and and they were uh, cross-examined by the other state, the state that had not, not called them, re-examined by the state which had called them, and then questioned by the judges. And you'll find that process described in the judgment. Now in the third case, you won't find any process described in a judgment because the parties uh, settled the particular dispute before it got to trial. That was a case between uh, Ecuador and Colombia uh, relating to the spraying of the coca crop by Colombia. Ecuador said that the spraying of the crop uh, was damaging the uh, environment, was damaging people on the uh, Ecuadorian side of the boundary, uh, and and was damaging plants, was causing illness, and so on, damaging animals. Colombia said no, the the damage wasn't established, and so on. Uh, In that case, we had, I think, 12,000 pages of uh, evidence filed of one kind or another, We had about 90 technical reports. We sent the parties a long, long list of questions which we wanted addressed. uh, Because we're dealing with this matter, The 17 of us in that case, 15 judges plus two ad hoc judges. We're dealing with it at first instance and last instance, no appeal, Uh, we're responsible for doing the whole job. And just a few weeks before the case was due to come to trial, Uh, with witnesses being called and with the prospect of lengthy cross-examination, re-examination, questioning by the judges, the parties wrote to the court saying, we have settled uh, the dispute, the case is to be discontinued. Now in a way that's disappointing because a huge amount of work was done by members of the court and by uh, assistants uh, to try to get on top of the scientific and technical matters, Um, So it's a shame that that work, in a sense, uh, wasn't carried on. But on the other side, it obviously helped the parties, as they indicated in their letters, to um, come to a settlement. So um, cases then uh, are getting more complex in that kind of way. They are sometimes complex in other ways, with long, long historical records. A case between Malaysia and Singapore, which went back centuries in terms of uh, the um, sovereignty over a particular piece of land, a a small island, a very small island, a rock really, uh, with a lighthouse built on it in the 19th century. Uh, And there we had um, lengthy documents of one kind or another, exchanges of one kind or another between the Sultan of Johor and the East India Company, earlier exchanges between the East India Company and the Dutch East India Company, uh, and then later treaties between uh, uh, between the Netherlands and the United Kingdom, and many subsequent developments. So, so there a different kind of um, evidentiary set of evidentiary issues were before the court. So, a range of business, then a range of parties, and and what um, lessons might be got from all of this uh, in in recent years. Well, the first um, set of lessons I think is is for the judges themselves for the court itself. We have the responsibility of doing justice according to law, of providing a fair hearing, an impartial hearing by independent judges, giving the parties full opportunity to present their cases and to challenge the cases against them. And as I say, to decide according to law. We've got to have processes under which they get that fair treatment. We've got to have processes, as I've indicated, that may have to come to grips with really quite difficult technical issues. Uh, And we need to keep working on those procedures and keep learning from our own experience and learning uh, as well from the experience of others because there is a lot of experience now at the international level and for much longer, of course, at the national level of dealing with some of the issues, many of the issues that arise on a day-to-day practical basis uh, in the court. Uh, and, and so, just to take one example, questions will sometimes arise, uh, this question indeed arose in the very first case before the court of evidence being withheld by a state for reasons they might say of national security. Britain said uh, a document that Albania sought in that Corfu Channel case was involved naval secrets that could not be released because of naval secrecy. What was the court to do about that? Well, in national practice back then, or the national practice I know about, courts would usually simply defer to the executive view. If if the relevant um, part of government, the relevant minister said to a court, you can't have this because of national security or because it's a cabinet secret, the court would uh, defer to that. Now, um, in the 1960s and 70s, national courts started to challenge that, And and the issue has arisen quite frequently now uh, in other international litigation. It it arose, for instance, in uh, cases before the International Court coming from the Balkans, um, Bosnia against Serbia, and more recently um, Croatia against Serbia. Uh, It's arisen in the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia. It's arisen uh, in uh, international um, tribunals dealing with free trade where there might be a claim of cabinet secrecy and there you will find ideas of um, balance and, and of process uh, coming into operation and they're very common across different courts and tribunals. The, the parties might be asked to have another look at their claim, to give a clearer statement of reason reasons. They might, in their bilateral negotiations, come to some kind of understanding. And, and you'll find now quite a lot of detailed work that has been done in different courts and tribunals in respect of that sort of issue. Also questions, as, as is indicated by the cases I've mentioned, in respect of uh, uh, technical matters. When should experts be called? When should a court take its own initiative, uh, not asked for by the parties, to involve experts? That happened, for instance, way back again in the Corfu Channel case, where some um, naval expertise was called on by the court um, with advice to the parties, with notice to the parties, with the parties having the opportunity to question the report and so on of the experts. But that was done not not at the initiative of uh, the parties, but rather at the initiative of the court. So there's that kind of issue. Another important role of the court Uh, is is to keep an overall view of the law. Uh, It is the only court court of general jurisdiction. It's the court that can say, let's look across the the board at, given all the cases that are coming before it, in respect, say, of treaty interpretation, in respect of maritime delimitation, in respect of state responsibility, in respect of territorial sovereignty, and so on. It gets the chance to, to take that bigger view uh, to uh, assist other courts and tribunals in, uh, in, in their own work by providing that bigger framework. And in doing that, of course, it can also draw on their experience, on the work that they do, and you'll find the court making reference uh, to um, rulings of other uh, international bodies. You find that, for instance, in an area which I haven't mentioned so far, in a human rights context, In the Diale case the case between Guinea and uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo where you'll find the um, court referring to uh, decisions of the European Court of Human Rights and of the African Commission on human and people's rights Uh, and and also in that case uh, some rulings of the uh, Human Rights Committee which also gets mentioned in a more recent advisory opinion the opinion relating to the International Fund for Agricultural Development. So the court then has that uh, wider role as well, but it has primarily the responsibility of getting on and deciding the cases before it in a fair and proper way and in accordance with uh, international law. That's the proposition that you find stated in Article 38 of the uh, statute of the court um, and words that were added in 1945, one of the few amendments to the uh, statute of the old court. Now I've talked about the responsibility of um, the judges and and the courts as as a whole, I also need to say a word about the responsibility of states and, and about the wider international legal community. Now one very important responsibility of the states is uh, in the business of election the, uh, of the judges. There are 15 judges on the court, as you no doubt know. And in, in the history of the court, at the moment I speak in uh, October 2014, uh, there have been 103 um, judges elected from only 50 countries, only four women in that time, um, and half, of the judges' years, if you multiply 15 by almost 70, half of the judge years on the court have been taken up by just 11 countries, by nationals of the P5, and by a number of other major states. You can work out for yourselves pretty easily uh, which they are. And that means that the (coughs) numbers of judges from the other um, 140 members of the UN so far, uh, is, is zero and there must be questions raised about uh, whether the um, distribution over the years is quite what it should be and related to that is the issue of uh, re-election. Um, another matter relevant to all this is the number of, uh, of, ju- of candidates who are nominated by national groups um, every three years and, and those numbers have fallen away I think alarmingly over the last uh, 20 years or so. The number of real competitions for election to the court uh, has dropped away so that each three years there might be just one or two, whereas in the past there were many more uh, competitions. So a lot of judges are elected without any competition, sometimes as a result of agreements between capitals, sometimes as a result of the decisions of national groups. Well for one I don't think that's uh, satisfactory. That's the matter of numbers. Now there's also the very important matter of quality, of the experience of the people who come to the court. We obviously need people who are very knowledgeable about international law. uh, People who have had ideally as well some real hands-on experience of the workings of international law and it's striking for instance how many of the Judges have had experiences as, as counsel or have had experience as, in, in arbitrations and international litigation. Uh, and, and as well, uh, it's, uh, it's striking how many of them have been members of the International Law Commission. Uh, so there's that kind of experience. We also need um, people who uh, are, are, are good at getting to grips with big factual records. Sometimes that will be a result of their uh, work as litigators, uh, as arbitrators say in their earlier professional lives but as I've indicated say by reference to those 12,000 pages we do have a lot of documentary documentary material that we've got to get on top top of. So there are those obligations then, those responsibilities of states in respect of elections, in respect of the uh, numbers and particularly in respect of the quality of those who contribute uh, to, to the important work of the court. It's, a, it's an individual responsibility of each of us. A, a second um, responsibility of the uh, international community of states uh, is in respect to the funding of the court. Now at times that's been under threat. At the moment the uh, funding is uh, satisfactory. It, it is in fact less than one percent of the regular UN budget for, for one of the principal organs of the UN a rather small amount but um, we're frugal about how it's used and, uh, and and it does for the moment seem to be adequate. There is, at least as I see it, the annoying um, business of uh, the various budgetary agencies being far too particular about how we spend the money. Much of the money is of course committed in any event to salaries and and rent, in effect rent, and to um pension payments and and staff payments and so on. Um, But there is an unnecessary amount of detail in respect of a body that is a court and which should have institutional independence from the funders. So there is that second area of of responsibility. Now, thirdly, uh, there is the responsibility of states uh, to make use of the court. I mentioned earlier the very positive statements that have been made All the way back to 1982 and the Manila Declaration, uh, later the 2005 outcome statement, the um, 2012 statement relating to uh, the rule of law. All these positive declarations, and you find them as well every year in the debate uh, in the General Assembly on the report of the International Court. Positive statements about using the court, but it doesn't happen in in the numbers that it might, perhaps. And one figure that manifests this is that of the 193 state members of the UN, only um, 70 have accepted the jurisdiction of the court under the compulsory jurisdiction provisions of Article 36, Paragraph 2 of the statute. Now, that's a slightly gloomy note on which to finish, and I should finish in a more positive way, And, and the more positive way is to call attention to the fact that uh, attitudes towards the court are very positive. Um, there is a great willingness to go to litigation. Uh, states now realise that they have many choices between different forms of dispute settlement uh, and and in another one of these um, lectures I've talked about the choices that were made in one particular controversy, the Rainbow Warrior case. Uh, and And it is interesting to see the that great variety, that great willingness um, across the board uh, to think of how disputes can best be handled. Now in many cases of course they're best, best handled by negotiation, by agreement. But if that doesn't work there is then a real array of different ways of managing disputes. And if I could end with just one example of management of a matter as opposed to resolving a dispute. I think at times we get misled by the words in the the Charter about dispute (coughs) settlement. Sometimes we should be thinking rather more about management rather than settlement. On the day that the court um, gave its judgement in the Peru-Chile case, drawing a maritime boundary out into the Pacific, the South Pacific Regional Fisheries Management Organisation was meeting, Um, and it was holding its second meeting, uh, and its task (coughs) is to look to the sustainable development of of the fisheries resources of the South Pacific, and it allocates year by year to the states which fish in that area (coughs) the the fish um, which are the main stocks. <clears throat> and they, they, as I say, do that year by year by year, looking to the scientific figures. Now the court determined the boundary. Um, the parties very rapidly uh, fixed the coordinates. We didn't fix the coordinates because we hadn't been given the precise technical information. The um, tri- the commission determined uh, who was able to catch what proportion of a total allowable catch uh, of Jack Mackerel, I think it was. <clears throat> and, and that was the real practical business. We were involved in looking at the historical record, look, looking at uh, the larger picture about where, as a matter of law, the boundary should go. But the real practical issue, because there's no oil in that immediate area that we were told about, um, the real practical issue was f- fisheries management. Now another aspect of that fisheries management is that parties to that process can challenge the commission's allocation. If they do that, that matter's gotta be handled very quickly because we're here concerned, as I said, with a year-by-year process. And in fact, there has been one challenge um, a year or so back and in that case, the challenge hearing was held on a Monday the reason decision was given by the tribunal, by the panel of three on the Friday, and and that was the decision. Um, It had to be done that quickly because of the tight time limits written into the uh, convention for for that management commission. So there you see the willingness of states to sign up to processes which do provide for independent third party decision according to law, uh, and which are appropriate to the situation uh, there's been a lot of talk about the dangers of fragmentation and proliferation, but I think a, a case like that or a, relation, a situation like that shows that you do need different methods um, for resolving different matters. So there is now a, a lot of rich experience uh, to which the International Court of Justice is a major contributor. Uh, it's, it's been a great experience for me, I must say, Uh, to have had the opportunity to serve on that body and uh, I still have uh, responsibilities left there and I need to return to them. We have one important judgment to complete um, before my term finishes. Uh, Thank you you for your attention and all the best to you.